Welcome to Calming the Chaos Podcast, where we help you find peace in a chaotic world. I'm Tracy Canella, licensed mental health counselor, certified eating disorder specialist, and advanced clinical hypnotherapist. Calming the Chaos Podcast provides you with self-help resources for handling anxiety, stress, and overwhelm. It is not a substitute for counseling or psychotherapy. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thanks for tuning in. And now let the chaos begin. In this episode of Calming the Chaos, I am here with a colleague and friend, Maria Rippo. And Maria and I actually went to hypnotherapy school together, if you want to call it that. We had so much fun and we learned a lot. Maria is a, a psychotherapist and a holistic coach, and she's also an advanced clinical hypnotherapist. She joins me today to talk about this common thread that we share which is both of us are therapists and both of us have struggled with disordered eating at one point in time in our lives. There is kind of a debate out there about whether people who have struggled with a mental illness are qualified to treat people with mental illnesses and in our case, eating disorders. Maria specializes in treating people who struggle with food, eating, body image, trauma, you name it, she does it. And we are going to have this conversation about therapists who have previously struggled with eating disorders and or other mental health issues and challenges, and whether or not they should be treating clients who are struggling with many of the same things. So join us now as we talk with Maria Rippo. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and talk about this. It's a, it feels like a juicy topic to me. Yeah, I know. And it's interesting because, I mean, it's been, you've been on my podcast before with Francie mm -hmm. and uh, you two did just an amazing job talking about, we talked about more like meaning and spirituality and eating stuff kind of floated in there every so often, but it's good to just be here with you so that I can learn more about what you're doing since you uh, have graduated with your master's. I know that was a journey in and of itself. Yes, I love hearing you say I'm a psychotherapist because I was thinking, you know, I sort of came in this really backwards way where a lot of times that's the first step for people to become sort of, you know, a um, practitioner in this world of healing. But it was like the last one. It was a very hard one title for me. So I love it. <laughs> and I love saying it, too, because, again, I know the journey that you were on was a long one. And it wasn't easy, but you did it. And uh, and I wish that I would have been there to uh, celebrate at your graduation. We were doing something different that day. And to hear you play in a kirtan. Yeah. Yes, I've heard you. was exciting and terrifying. <laughs> I had never played in front of anybody. And here we were like putting on this whole concert. And I was playing with a live drummer for the first time. And but my teacher was really good and, um, you know, we had practiced a lot, but it um, it was so fun and exhilarating. So I hope to do it again. Yeah, for some of the viewers and listeners out there that doesn't that don't know what a kirtan is, could you explain it briefly? 
Yeah, so kirtan is um, devotional folk music from India, and it's a call and response. So it's very like community oriented, simple chants that are repetitive that the people in the audience can learn very easily. And so we sing it and then they sing it and then we sing it and they sing it. And there's lots and lots of different chants. And it's very, um, I mean, some of the chants are slower and feel more sort of devotional. The, the language is Sanskrit for most of the music that I play. Um, but it it's almost like you just get this felt sense. You don't have to know what it means. And so it was so fun. We had these little instruments for everybody. So everyone's like, playing the instruments and I handed out the words and we're just doing this call and response and it's just beautiful. Yeah, I love me a good kirtan for sure. And cause I love to sing and I'm always on the response side. So it'd be really super cool one day to be able to do the call piece, but uh, I don't play uh, the, oh my gosh, I'm blanking the on the harmonium. name. The harmonium, yes, I do not play the that. The harmonium is the main like drone instrument for kirtan mm -hmm. and it's super easy to pick up. The hard part for me is that I, <laughs> I actually picked up kirtan. I wanted him to teach me on my flute because I thought it would be so fun to play along with songs on my flute because I'm, I've been a lifetime flute player, flautist. And the first lesson he goes, well, let's just try the harmonium and you can sing. And I was terrified, like my voice, is the last part of me I feel like to sort of come fully open and free and it's not quite all the way free but I don't have a natural singing voice I have good pitch but I don't this got shut down in me like big time as a kid and so opening it up is a complete practice in itself for me and that's where I get terrified but you did it I did it yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and it does take some training to be a good even a practical vocalist like I am, just somebody who just knows how to sing a song without any real oomph to it, but can actually hit the notes and the pitches and stuff like that. So far out. I just, I really am sad that I missed it, but I'm going to hear a little bit more about you and your journey. What do you want to tell our audience about, about you now that they know that you uh, know how to play the harmonium, the flout? the flute, and uh, you lead kirtans. What, do you, what else do you want to tell our audience about you? Yeah, so it's interesting. I've had a private practice for about 10 or so years as a holistic coach and a hypnotherapist. And the way that I got decided I needed to go to school and become a psychotherapist is that um, my niche was always emotional eating. And so... Um, I wasn't technically working with people who experience eating disorders, but what I what happened was I had had a lot of training in treating trauma, even though I wasn't a psychotherapist, as you know, because part of our training mm -hmm. together was in trauma treatment and, and doing our own trauma work, mm -hmm. deep trauma work. And um, what happened was more and more clients with more and more trauma started coming to me and I was noticing dissociation and um, deep shame. And I started realizing I'm not really a coach. <laughs> like I'm doing therapy and I need a license. And so I, as soon as I had that realization, I mean, I kept within my boundaries, but I saw like these people need what I can offer and I need more training. And anyway, so I, um, 
went to school at a particular school that I chose because it was very experiential, but um, it was a new school. So I did the, my whole master's degree in transpersonal counseling psychology, and then a glitch happened with the accreditation. So I wasn't going to be able to get licensed, but I knew my path was to be licensed, to work with trauma officially and work with eating disorders officially. People who have experienced trauma and people who experience eating disorders. And um, so I applied for another master's and went straight in without a break to another master's degree. And so I finally graduated after six years of grad school, as you know, that was a crazy path. But when you feel a calling, like I have a calling, I have a calling to help people heal their trauma and to understand their eating disorder. I don't even know if I want to say heal their eating disorder because it's like the eating disorder is such a powerful teacher. That's how I see it. And so um, I wanted to dive deeper into all of this. And honestly, um, I had to have a license, but a lot of the training that I wanted to do, I also needed to be a psychotherapist for the training. So I've been in the field actually for quite a while, just newly licensed yeah. <laughs> after a million years of school. So yeah, yeah, I know what it's like, not on the master's level, but on the on the bachelor's level. It took me 20 years to get my four-year degree. And mostly because of financial stuff and you know life stuff that got in the way, but I know how it is to have a calling and a path. And you know they say many of us who have struggled with a mental illness or disorders, it, you know we go into the field of healing and helping and uh, psychotherapy, psychology, or what have you. And it's because we've been down that path, mm -hmm. and we know how it feels. And it's out of a sort of uh, movement in our hearts to be able to help other people with that same sort of pain. How did you figure that you were going to be helping uh, emotional eating or eating disorders, full, full eating disorders in your practice? So I was never officially diagnosed with an eating disorder, but my guess now is that I may have been diagnosed with like orthorexia or um, maybe anorexia. I'm not really sure. I What happened with me is that um, I went through a lot of adult trauma. So in my 30s, um, my father-in-law dropped dead one day. Is, it, is this going to be too triggering if I say what it was? Maybe I should just say that I went through a lot of trauma. No, you, um, nothing is off limits on Calming the okay. Chaos podcast. You can go ahead okay. and talk about, you should have heard what we talked about on New Year's Eve. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> I like real talk, but I realize like maybe a trigger warning of like a trauma story is, is um, yeah. appropriate, but. Yeah, if there's a, yeah, we, we can put a trigger warning in here and that would be a really good idea. I should probably do that more often, but anyway. <laughs> so anyway. I had had, we had had our fourth child. She was 18 months old. My oldest was eight. And one day my father-in-law just dropped dead. And we were so close to him. He was so involved in our life. It was so traumatic. And six weeks later, my dad had a massive stroke. And he didn't die, but he he did in a, in a lot of ways. I never, he never could utter words that we could understand again. He never could walk by himself again. Um, 
it was traumatizing just watching my dad be in that state actually for 12 years, I think before he died. And then, um, then we ended up losing our house and going bankrupt. And, um, I just lost myself. I just completely like the ground that I always knew was completely pulled out from under me. I didn't know what was up, what was down. I started questioning everything I believed. I actually left the belief system that I was part of for a long time that my kids were raised in. Um, we all left in different ways. Um, and so it was after our dads, what happened, we lost our dads. And I do say I lost my dad, even though he was alive, I lost my dad. I never had a conversation with him again. Um, that So it was a huge loss. And I like to always acknowledge that, that we can have a loss. We can experience grief even when somebody's still alive. And I feel like people don't talk about it, but most people experience some form of that. Mm -hmm. So um, after, what after we lost our dads, I was like, I'm not going to make it unless I put my focus somewhere. So I started doing triathlons. And maybe before or right about that time, I also became a raw vegan. And I really did it because I was trying to heal actually like a systemic fungal candida type thing. So I really started it because I couldn't really afford to go to a doctor or anything to help me figure this stuff out. So I was always reading and doing my own research and I found this raw vegan diet and I literally thought I had found the fountain of youth. I really thought if I do this, I'm not going to have diseases. I'm not going to, you know, and honestly, for the first year on it, I was like superwoman. <laughs> like I didn't need as much sleep. My mind was so clear. I had so much energy. I lost all this weight. I never felt better in my life. And then, and I was also working out and doing triathlons. And then this obsession started. The obsession is what I call the disorder, the disordered eating. Mm -hmm. um, the other stuff, it would have worked itself out because I actually became super deficient and tired after about a year. And I kept trying to like juice fast and do all these crazy things that were making it worse until I finally realized, oh my God, this fountain of youth is going to kill me, you know? Uh, but it took about a year because I believed so wholeheartedly in it. But during that time, this obsession set in and I was like, I could be perfect, you know? And I, my ego loved it. It was like, it felt like I could control something. Um, and so I just ate, I was, I got so much attention. Everybody was like, oh my God, your body. And it was perfect because I felt so damaged as a person. I felt so helpless. I had so much shame. And I was like, this is the perfect cover. Nobody's going to find out all this stuff that's wrong with me and how bad. I actually thought it was bad. Just bad and damaged were my really core shame beliefs. And I was like, I can hide from everyone. This is a, this is the most amazing mask. And so I just was so obsessed. Like I had to be working out. I had to be eating perfectly. Um, and 
I remember sitting in church one day and I was like, I'm not even paying attention to the sermon. All I'm thinking about is if I'm perfect enough and what am I going to eat? And what if I gain a pound? And I was like, whoa, something's wrong with this. Like something's not right. And then I started realizing like every thought was about this obsession. I had had this fatigue and I definitely had signs of mineral deficiencies and like some thyroid issues. So it was on my own where I was like, wait, I don't want all my energy to be thinking about this all the time. Like something's not right here. There's no balance. And I found, um, I think that was about when I found Anita Johnston's Eating in the Light of the Moon. I did realize I had some really strict rules around sugar mainly. Like if I would eat sugar, I would just go off on this six month sugar out of control thing. And so I had no control around sugar. It would like call my name. It was like I had a megaphone. If I had it in my ice cream or something, it'd be like Maria, like all day long. And I would be obsessing about not eating it all day long. It was so awful. And I didn't, I'm very much of a person that wants to be free. So once I realized I wasn't free, that was all the motivation I needed to be like, I need to find out why I'm not free and how I can be free. I also at that time had become, <laughs> this is really, it's not funny. It is funny and it's not funny at all. I had become a holistic lifestyle coach. I got certified. So I also realized like what I, when, when I was telling people how I did my life, I was just hearing myself and I was like, no one could do that. Like no one's going to put that much effort into trying to look like this or feel like this. Like this is crazy. Something, something has to change. So that's what it, my disordered eating looked like for me. Um, and what I can say is through my experience, I, I went into pretty intensive therapy at that point I read Anita's book. I've probably read that book 20 times. I still read it every year. I still read it. I've actually worked with her in her online program for about three years. So I also um, keep up with that that way because the teachings in there, they're so deep that mm -hmm. you're never going to get it reading through there once. It's like a lifetime work of um, deconditioning. I realized mm -hmm. like I had all this conditioning and that was the issue. I had this conditioning around that my value came from looking a certain way or being a certain size. I had no idea that my value was just inherent and that it doesn't matter what size my body is. My value is there. Um, it's not about a body size. That was huge for me with Anita. Also um, learning that I'm a very sensitive, intuitive, empathic person, which oftentimes those of us that go towards, um, coping through eating disorder behavior um, happen to be really sensitive people that are trying to navigate the really hard things of life without tools for processing, maybe without attunement from others being met. Um, 
So through my healing of my disordered eating and my disordered relationship with my body, and even I would say myself, the transformation has been so incredible that it was all I could, I was like, I have to help other people facilitate this kind of, you know, healing. I, I call it uncovery. I don't even really call it healing. I feel like I'm on this path of dismantling everything that I thought was me. That's not me so that I could come back home to my true self, my instinctive nature, my unique expression way that life is expressing through me as me that's never been expressed before and never will be again. I want that expression to be as full as possible, as authentic as possible. Um, I like to say to my clients, like, it's like walking through a field of flowers and you see this daffodil or this tulip, or even just this like tropical, amazing flower that you've never seen before that's so colorful. It is this shape that you're like, how did this even happen? And you just like, ah, oh, embrace it and feel this sense of ah. Oh. And then I'm like, what if that flower, this tropical, amazing, I don't even know what it is and can't even imagine how it was made, flower that's creating this sense of awe in me, what if it spent its whole life trying to be a daffodil, <laughs> trying to be some other expression of life? We would miss its beauty. Mm -hmm. And so my whole job, I feel like, is this work of uncovery, of understanding the um, function of the eating disorder, not the dysfunction. It's functional. That's why we have it. It was mm -hmm. solved. A problem. It was it was helping us. And I think that if we look at an eating disorder, and this is what I began to do with Anita's help, was look at it as my teacher rather mm -hmm. than as the proof that's that I'm damaged and bad. And I have to say that I had the most wonderful experience with Anita on this podcast, and I would never have met her if it hadn't been for you introducing us. And it was such a joy to be able to talk about food as a metaphor and about different things that she had different perspectives, her history. She's just a delight. And for you to have been able to study under her must have been really super cool. Oh my gosh. It's, I just, I am so thankful. I mean, she's one of the humans I am most thankful for because I don't know where I would be without her work and mm -hmm. just her mentorship. And yeah, I'm not really sure. I'm just thankful I don't have to find out. <laughs> right. Cause it's already over and you already did. And you kind of still are when you think about it and uh, working in the light of the moon cafe and all of those uh, resources are on my podcast interview with Anita Johnston that happened around last year this time. And so, yeah, so there's a, I wouldn't say it's popular belief, but there is a belief that if a person has struggled with food, eating and body image and or and all of the above, that they are not appropriate to be in a room with somebody who's currently struggling. What's your opinion about that, Maria? Mm. Well, the feedback that I receive from my clients 
is oftentimes they're like, are you inside my head? Like, how do you understand that? And I'm like, because I've lived it. And then they're always like, that's why I come to you. I don't mm -hmm. want to come to somebody who learned all of this from a book. I want to come to somebody who has learned all of this from lived experience. And they're mm -hmm. so thankful. They feel like I get it. And I don't judge because I have such deep understanding of the functional nature of an eating disorder right. that I'm really just helping my clients. I mean, this is going to sound maybe weird to some people. I do something called ego state therapy, trained in it. I love it. It is so transformative. It's somewhat like IFS, but it's much more um, on a subconscious visualization level. And all of it is happening as the client is realizing things. There's nothing um, that's like this or this or this. The client is really facilitating their own work around the parts of themselves and the functions of the parts of themselves and integrating parts of themselves. So what I notice and part of the chaos of treating eating disorders is that there is so much shame underneath the eating disorder and shame itself creates so much chaos within our inner system. And ego state therapy is all about integrating the inner system. So when my clients begin to become aware of the parts of themselves that have roles in the eating disorder, and they start seeing that the reason this part is this way is that it's trying to achieve this. And even though when it achieves this, it's also damaging, that part doesn't have like a mind of its own. It's really a neural network in the brain. It's not an actual other person or something. It's a neural network that doesn't have this conscious thinking mind. It's just like this automatic survival intelligence happening so that we can survive. And once they start feeling a sense of appreciation for how this part of them has just been working 24 seven to help them survive, what they didn't have any other way to survive. And they start feeling appreciation and the other parts of them start feeling appreciation. And then we start negotiating with that part for the possibility of a different way to achieve the same goal that isn't destructive. It's just magic. And I'm not saying it's magic like, boom, they're healed in one session because we all know eating disorders are very complicated and complex and take time to heal. So I'm not promoting any sort of like magical solution, but when I start seeing my clients integrate their inner system and their shame start dissolving, then change can start happening. Absolutely. Real, it's not surface level change. It's real change. Just like with me, like I always tell my clients, I, I weigh a weight right now. I'm like probably premenopausal. I'm 53 and who knows, like everything's changing. I weigh a weight that I've never weighed before. And when I was in my eating disorder, if I had ever known 
I would weigh this, I probably would have wanted to die. Like literally, I, I wouldn't have thought I would want to be alive. But because those parts of me are integrated and my identity doesn't come from the size of my genes, I won't say there's no parts of me that don't care about my appearance because I live in Western society as a female. <laughs> I, I'm just going to be honest. I, But I've integrated all of that. And so like, I'm not identified and it's a miracle to me. It is an absolute miracle to me that I don't hate myself because I weigh some whatever, which I hardly ever step on the scale anyway. But um, yeah, so integration and, and healing shame is such a huge part of reducing the chaos of eating disorders. Yeah, thanks for uh, explaining that therapy, uh, because I had never heard of that modality before. And if I had, I had forgotten about it because I had never learned it. So it's always great to hear how other people were trained and what they do in sessions. So, okay. wow. Yeah. And so the question of whether people who have struggled with eating disorders should be treating people with eating disorders is is yes, I, I hear, I hear from your answer. And that would be, absolutely. yeah. And, and it's like, get you're you're inside my head. And it reminds me of how many times a day I hear that word exactly. Because if a, if a person is explaining something and I repeat it back and I add some things mm -hmm. and perspectives to deepen it a little bit, they, they are, completely, then there's another layer peeled back and they're like, exactly, that's exactly right. That's exactly what I was trying to explain. And uh, it, it's great to be able to help people unpeel the layers. And I also like what you said about, it's not a really a recovery, but it's an uncovering. And uh, I appreciate you saying that because you do have to uncover, you have to notice first, like you did when you were in church, you have to notice that this is taking up my whole life. Mm -hmm. And this is taking up my whole thought space, my mental real estate, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to because I value freedom. And so I'm going to have to notice it first. And then comes the hard work of uncovering it. But learning the functionality of an eating disorder, how it's helped you through some of the roughest times of your life. Uh, although not sustainable, uh, and obviously when you realize that it's not sustainable, that there are other ways that you can be able to handle the emotions that you feel, be able to feel powerful and safe uh, without using food and without having to have a certain size or shape or weight. Mm -hmm. I sometimes use the metaphor of the difference between like a caged an animal in a cage that just doesn't, it does not free to just roam nature versus an animal that's free to roam nature. Because I feel like, like so much of my uncovery has been noticing the cages that I put myself in, which I mean, not, I didn't do it on purpose or anything like that, but my survival intelligence did to help me have some sense of safety. And that so much of my uncovery has been returning to my instinctual nature. And like our bodies know what to do. Our bodies know what size to be. It's partly why I don't fight my body because I'm like, I don't know what my body is doing. I mean, I'm not changing anything on eating and exercising and whatever, but my body's changing and that's what happens as we get older. And I'm going to trust my body 
you know, like we have this instinctual nature where when we connect, we get very disconnected from it. I think growing up, um, our society, I wouldn't say really knows how to um, help us be connected with our instinctual nature. But when we can reconnect and trust our body and have this trusting relationship with our body and its communication to us, we would never have to measure something. We just could listen when we're hungry. You know, it's like the mindful eating. We can listen when we're hungry. We can listen to what our body is craving. And we can stop when we're satisfied, knowing that next time we're hungry, we can eat again. And it's really super cool to have somebody who's already been through an eating disorder or disordered eating behaviors to go with you through those dark places. That's exactly what Carolyn Costin said, is that I will be with you when you go through those dark places, when you do your recovery or uncovery, as you say, I will be with you. And I've been there before. And I think there's a sense of security and safety in that for, for clients. And then the other piece that's really important that you mentioned before is the shame is so intense with many of these people telling their stories that to judge them would be, would be not, it wouldn't be honoring their, their experience or to be able to, to do that because they go to the doctor and they're judged. They get on the scale in the doctor's office and they're judged. They're told this and that. Even some nutritionists may judge their eating habits. Their, their own people might judge them. So when they come into the therapy office, it's really important that we, we've experienced shame and we know how, how difficult and painful it is that we are able to honor their experience and not to judge them, to meet them where they're at. And um, I think that, and it's different for everybody. Uh, so I, I had a therapist friend one time say that everything changes. Every time somebody else comes into the room, it changes. It changes everything. And the way nobody's nobody develops an eating disorder for the same reasons. Nobody's uh, struggle is the same and nobody's recovery is the same. And that is different than a cookie cutter approach. And that's what, what one of the things that makes eating disorder treatment so complex. But it's also very interesting, too. That so Maria was really candid about her struggles with disordered eating. And so I thought just in kind, I would share a little bit about myself and my own struggles. I was 16 years old when I first started struggling with food and not eating. I just wasn't hungry. I was stressed out. And I started noticing that I lost quite a bit of weight and in that process started to feel kind of empowered about my own ability to control my life. And it was really reinforcing to have that eating disorder. So when Maria says, you know, listen to what the eating disorder is trying to tell you, you know, what in my case, it was trying to tell me that I didn't feel like I had a whole lot of power and eating disorder and restricting food actually helped me to feel more powerful in my life. You know, I struggled with this one from age 16 to 20. And at the age of 20, I was able to get some help from a therapist who offered a sliding fee scale, which for you who don't know what that is, that means that they will offer to do therapy sessions with you if you can't afford to 
pay for them yourself. So I was in Grants Pass, Oregon, and I miraculously found somebody who would see me at very, very little cost. And I remain thankful to her uh, to this day and was able to get through the eating disorder then. But then for extra fun, while I was in graduate school for my master's degree in counseling, I relapsed into anorexia nervosa. And it was a pretty, I think I struggled a lot more in that case, which is really mind-blowing. Fortunately, my program at Chapman University required us to seek mental health counseling sessions as a part of our graduation. So I did have to do 20 sessions mandated, but I worked on my eating disorder and it was so great because one, I had the money to do it by that time. uh, And two, I had such a great experience with this therapist. And three, this therapist encouraged me to go into treating eating disorders. And I said, what? I'm not supposed to be treating eating disorders. Like that's kind of taboo, right? Because I have struggled with an eating disorder. And she said, absolutely not. She was of the opinion that that people who struggled with eating disorders are especially valuable in the field. And that's when I started checking out, doing a specialty area in eating disorders. I did get over that eating disorder actually only lasted three years, but uh, I'm happy to say that it is not with me anymore. And I do a lot of personal work. I have a counselor that I meet with on the regular every two weeks to a month, depending on how bad things are getting in my life. And I intend to do that for probably the rest of my life. And so it just has to do with your willingness to open up and see your own issues and to deal with it. And we're not perfect. Just because we're counselors doesn't mean that we are free of mental, emotional, and behavioral issues. But this is the deal. We are just committed to doing the work. Just like we ask clients to do the work, we show up and do our own work. And that's the way I feel about it all. So anybody who says that, yeah, you know, mental mental health counselors, they have their own issues, they are correct, 100% correct. We do. And we're working on them. What you were saying about Carolyn saying, I will be with you, I feel like that is huge because so much of trauma is an attachment um, disorder. You know, it's like an attachment rupture. We had attachment ruptures. And part of the responsibility that I take so seriously is I am helping to facilitate a corrective experience. Trauma, as Gabor Mate says, is not what happened. It's that I experienced it alone. And what that did to me and what happens when we experience trauma alone is that that's where the shame comes from. Like nobody's here. I'm not deserving. I'm not worthy. I don't matter. And um, we learn to abandon ourselves. Shame is a way that we abandon ourselves. And I, I teach my clients this, that so we always have to choose connection over authenticity. So as a child, even if we're raised in a really well-meaning family, if we are taught you can be this way, but you cannot be this way, 
it's okay to be this way, but it's not okay to be this way. Um, we learn to sort of put away parts of ourselves, abandon parts of ourselves in order to have whatever connection we can have. We have to abandon ourselves. And so um, I often tell my clients, like, notice when you're abandoning yourself through shame and then get curious about how you could turn towards yourself instead with compassion. Yeah, self-compassion is really key to helping these folks. Self-compassion and self-care seem to be very hard uh, for people who struggle with food. That's why that corrective relationship is so important because it's first going to come from us mm -hmm. attuning with them and meeting with them over and over. Some of my most severely eating disorder clients are the ones that have abandoned themselves so fully. And so they're sure I'm going to do it too. Like eventually, and they'll even have a part of them We'll, we'll speak to this. I noticed there's this part of you that wants to push a little more and a little more and just see now is she going to abandon me? Now is she going to force me into treatment? Now is she going to do all these things that I'm just sure are going to happen? And they have to experience over a long period of time that I'm still with them. I still understand that this part of them has a positive intention. It might be dysfunctional, but it's, it's functional, you know, yeah. and we need to understand the functional nature first. And I'm not afraid of that part of you and we can speak to it and we can appreciate how much it's trying to help you survive right now. Yeah. So what do you think you can do or say, uh, Maria, by the way, you have a fascinating last name. Could you pronounce the whole thing for us? It's not just Rippo. It's more than that. So my um, maiden name, including my middle name, with my married name is Maria Lucia Mangiarelli Ripo. <laughs> I say it like this because it's Italian. We have to do it with our hands. <laughs> <laughs> that is a beautiful name. Oh, my goodness. I see it on my Facebook uh, my Facebook page, because you're my Facebook friend. And I said, I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm not even going to try, but that is beautiful. The way you just, I have, I have a funny little story. So our last name was hard to learn to spell. And, you know, you have to learn it as like a kindergarten or a preschooler. Right. So my mom made a song. M-A-N-G-I-A-R-E-L-L-I. <laughs> it's to the theme of Mickey Mouse. <laughs> That's how we learned to spell our last name. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, yeah. So, so I was going to ask you. So, with within your your treatment of of people in your in your practice and eating disorders in particular, do you find that there's much request for hypnotherapy? Mm. So this is interesting. I do hypnotherapy, EMDR sensory motor psychotherapy and ego state therapy, and every client has different preferences. So I have, I, I think of this one client, I had done hypnotherapy a lot with her and she loved it. And then we tried EMDR and she came in the next time crying because she was afraid to tell me, I hate EMDR, I wanna do hypnotherapy. And I'm always so honoring of my client. They're the expert of themselves. Yeah. I want to help them get in touch with their own expertise over themselves. And so I just honor when a client has that courage to say, I don't want to do that. I hated that. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. Let's not do that then. And yeah. if you ever decide you want to try it, cool. We'll try it. But 
you know, I don't um, dictate what, what we have to do. And I really work like as a partner with my clients. Yeah. Um, so some clients really like hypnotherapy. So sometimes it's very useful, but I've also found, gosh, I mean, it would take a while to explain, but so hypnotherapy has you go back to uh, experience in the past and then create a corrective experience and maybe see if you left any part of yourself behind there and bring it back. But in ego state therapy, one of the things that we do is we just reach back in time and we take a hold of that child self and pop them here and, and bring them here so they're not stuck back there anymore and do a corrective experience without really necessarily having to go into the trauma. And I have found that to be incredibly transformative. So I just have so many different ways I work. And like you said, it's never the same. It's yeah. very intuitive. I mean, as therapists, we I think it's super important that we're in touch with our intuition and really listen because there's, I think when these two people come together, there's some sort of third force and I'm not gonna get like spiritual or anything. I don't even know what it is, but there's something there that's informing the process. And I can't tell you how many times I've said to my clients, so something just came to me. It feels important. Would you like me to share it with you? And I do. And they're like, how did you know that? That's the same thing that was just happening with me. And I'm like, I don't know how I knew it. It just came and I just offered it. No idea how that works. Yeah, I think one of our teachers, uh, when we were studying hypnotherapy, said that it just comes down the portal, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the, the portal is open, then something will come through, and then it'll just be, and I know exactly what you mean, it'll it's just say, vessel. yeah, it's, vessel. it's, really, it's magical uh, when that happens, and it happens a lot uh, in the work that, that I do. And I think it's partly is because we're so open to it happening. And another part is that, Oh, I'm really at a loss of how which direction to go right now, and let's just open up and see if something comes through. <laughs> uh, totally. Yeah, and, and, and it's it so, like it just does, you know. It does. It well, it does if you ask for it, and and it does if you don't. <laughs> so, when I first started, you know, becoming a therapist or even a holistic coach, hypnotherapist, it's like getting thrown in the deep end of the pool and not really knowing exactly how to swim, hoping for a floaty to show up. And I used to be so scared at the beginning of every session because I feel like my ego like wanted to know what the steps were or something. But after a while, you just really begin to trust the process. And I just go into every session and I may have somewhat of an agenda of what's going to happen, but I always tell my clients that I hold that very loosely because I don't really know what's going to happen. Um, yeah. And I am just amazed all the time. And I think it keeps me from burnout because it's like so exciting to see what happens in a session. And I have nothing to really, I mean, maybe I'm helping facilitate, but I don't feel like I have a lot to do with what's happening besides just knowing how to sort of facilitate the happening or something. Yeah. Yeah. So that is, it's so with, with that said, I want to know if you can say anything to inspire the Therapists that are just entering the field or maybe have been in the field as generalist or specialist in other areas other than eating disorders, do you think you can say something to inspire more people to treat this population? 
I think it's how we view eating disorders. You know, like if you can, so eating disorders can feel scary because they can be lethal. We're not working a lot of times with a lot of issues that can be lethal unless it leads to like suicidal plans or something. And so I have, I think that coming to eating disorders, I would say read Anita Johnston's book, Eating in the Light of the Moon to get inspired because if you can look at the eating disorder as a metaphor and even a teacher for what is wanting to come out from hiding within this person, this sort of story that wants to be lived out through them as them, but it just got blocked up because being human and existing is scary and overwhelming. And um, really we're just helping people uncover what was the function, what is the function of that eating disorder. And we can have boundaries around who we will work with. You know, we are not, um, what do you call it, like top, tier treatment, you know, like if somebody is in a situation where um, they're in danger, their physical health is in danger, we're, we're, we're getting them help for that before we're doing this other work. And so um, I would just say that in my experience, and maybe part of it is because of my own experience of uncovering myself through with my eating disorder as the catalyst, um, that it's exciting work. It's like being a detective. So we don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to save or fix or, you know, anything like that. We're just like being a detective together with our client. And if we think of it like that, it can actually become super creative and interesting and fun and also we need to realize that eating disorders can take years to um, treat and that's okay. And it's actually seems to be pretty normal. It was some years for me, yeah. definitely. I mean, I'm still doing my work of uncovery. I'm not gonna pretend that I'm all the way uncovered. <laughs> I think it's a lifetime work, but that initial part with deconstructing the conditioning that's created the perfect storm for the eating disorder takes a while. And I think with a lot of my clients' attunement and attachment repair work, you know, that can be a couple years before this total trust is built and we can go start going deeper. So I would just say patience and mm -hmm. coming to it, you can just be sort of rogue and creative and um, it doesn't have to be this, this daunting work and we need people. There is such a rise in eating disorders. And I think that's because it's a very sort of convenient way to cope, you know, way to survive, way to feel some sense of control. And if you look at our world right now, it feels chaotic and like, Things are falling apart and nothing's the same. So it makes so much sense that people would be turning towards something where they feel a sense of control 
or a, or an ability to just numb it all out. Um, mm-hmm. That we really need more practitioners that are um, competent in working with people who are surviving in this particular way. Yeah, and even if you're willing to do the work, I would like to add that there's all kinds of consultation out there available. A lot of it is for free. You don't have to pay for it. But yeah, you could come to me as a consultant or as a certified eating disorder specialist supervisor or just someone who does consulting and you could pay for it. But I'm also involved in a lot of treatment centers free consultation groups so that I can give that out for free for other practicing therapists. There are um, outreach coordinators from treatment centers who would be happy to talk to you. You're not alone. There's always going to be some resource for you to access. And so with the therapists, I would say, just like we tell our clients, we'll be with you as you go into those dark places. If you're a therapist who is at all interested in treating eating disorders or willing to try it, you're not going to be alone. You're gonna have a treatment team also. Typically, if you have somebody who has an eating disorder, you're gonna want a physician on the team. Sometimes there's a dietitian or a psychiatrist and that's minimum. And there's all kinds of healers out there who if you're willing to work with eating disorders, we're gonna need that, especially coming out of this pandemic. I, I turn away at least and these are all eating disorder clients, but yesterday there were six people who wanted therapy. I, I just can't handle any more. I'm already working way over. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we need people that are willing, who are willing to do this work of counseling. So even if you're messed up, even if you have trauma in your history, even if you have a, a disorder, you can do a therapy. You just need to be aware of your issues and continue to, like Maria said, work on them. Do your own work. And the work, in my opinion, never ends because mm-hmm. we all have issues and challenges um, with, uh, with emotions, with thoughts and feelings and behaviors. So please, if you're at all interested, give me an email or reach out to Maria. In fact, here, I want to go ahead and pause here, Maria, you've been such an engaging participant, and I almost forgot to introduce everybody to your website. Mm. And there is Maria, just like it sounds, mariarippo.com. Let's go see if we can take a trip to her website here. Which I have to say is on my New Year's resolutions list. Uh, my Because I just graduated in May and I've been so busy, my website is somewhat outdated. I do try to get in there and tweak a little bit. But um, anyway, yeah, I, so I always load- am like, oh, I don't know what's even on there. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> the- well, the first thing I see is a really super cool logo. And trust me, with somebody, I just went through a rebranding process just this past May, and they did such a horrible job that I had to just pretty much rebrand myself. Oh, I just love that. I don't know if you created that that logo. My, a sorority sister of mine that's a graphic artist created it, and it was like she created it way back even um, it's my only logo I've had, and I have just always loved it. It's I just love it. So perfect. Yeah, it's it's perfect for your name, and I like the pink. And so we've got an explanation of authentic self, which I think you were talking about 
uh, ego yeah. state. And well, you were talking about we sacrifice that um, to have connection. So mm -hmm. we shed pieces of our authentic self uh, to able to, to be able to stay in connection with others. And so there's an explanation of that and a cute little picture of you in a cowboy hat. <laughs> I was on that day of the eclipse. Like, I don't know. Do you remember when we had the full eclipse and it actually got dark? We were out in um, Winthrop. Yeah. I love oh that picture. Gosh. <laughs> I, re I remember that day and taking a whole bunch of pictures and everything. It was really super cool. Yeah, and so you also have, and I have to present these in different screens, so bear with me here. I don't know why it doesn't just let me click on the tabs, but that's what that's what I'm dealing with. I would, while you're doing that, I would love to just say that um, I did a, um, a, I guess, like support group around Anita's book, The Eating in the Light of the Moon work, last year, and it was so amazing that I'm going to be offering that again this year, probably starting toward the end of February. So if anybody's interested in that, you can email me at maria at mariarippo.com. Great, great. I'll go ahead and put that in there. And we do have a tab with that on there. This is the about me tab. I just, okay, so what, here is your flower analogy there. And then there's you. Is that you really jumping that high? Mm -hmm. So my daughter happened, I don't even know if I had asked her to take a picture or what, but she happened to do one of those pictures where it just takes a picture of every like 30 pictures a second kind of a thing. And it just looks like I was jumping so high. I mean, I was just jumping normal, but it just turned out amazing. <laughs> Yeah, that one of those flukes of photography that's actually real. What a, I just love that picture. It's it's beautiful. Yeah, she just took yeah. it on her phone. <laughs> yeah, so there's some really nice information about about Maria and some great pictures. And I believe this is the page where you have you have one of your pages that says your uh, your email, and I will also put it in. The show yeah, there should be the contact. Is there a contact page mm -hmm. on there? Yeah, let me just see. Let's see if this works. It did not work before. Did that change pages? Uh-huh. Oh, it did. Mm -hmm. Great. Then I don't have to worry about these other tabs then. So the pro the program that you were talking about, is it the mindful mindfulness-based oh. eating uh, no, I actually should offer that one again, too. I do get requests for that. Um, I, I am a like certified mindfulness-based eating awareness training practitioner or whatever, um, but that's a whole different program. I often, when we're going through Eating in the Light of the Moon, I add in some of that, and I really like that program because there's a lot of guided visualizations, which, you know, because we like those uh, getting relaxed and hypnosis, hypnotherapy. It's not really called hypnosis. It's guided visualization, but they're both to me about the same. But anyway, I, you know, if people reached out to me and wanted to just do that, I would be happy to put a group together too. It's really powerful. It's, um, yeah. it's actually evidence-based treatment for binge eating disorder. Um, so, wow. Mm -hmm. And is that, is that online or is that in person? Um, I've done it in person, but I'm open to doing any of this online. I actually often do hybrid groups because I got this thing. It's called an owl. Have you heard of this meeting owl? I have heard of it. It's yes. The thing the that center and if people that are on Zoom feel like they're in the room, it's amazing. Yeah. So I often do both. Yeah. 
Awesome. And so some of the free things that you offer on your website here is you've got some recipes and a blog and there's actual recipes on here. And it's really, there's a lot of them. There's, there's so many that you have to categorize them apparently. Beverages, wow. breakfast. I, <laughs> I'm very into, so I'm Italian. I'm a foodie. I'm very into like nutrient dense, you know, it's like real food coming from the earth and whatever. And, but it needs to taste good and be amazing. And, you know, Italians often have their own little mini farms, like very, it's just part of our culture to, to have value high quality food. And so this comes from this. I oftentimes make up recipes and I need things to taste really yummy and be like exciting in my mouth. <laughs> Foodgasms. <laughs> yeah. so, yes. When I create recipes, although I haven't added anything on my blog in so long. So like I said, yeah. I think they're a little outdated. And is this actually you standing on your head there in That's Chichen Itza? me in Chichen Itza in Mexico in mm -hmm. front of a pyramid. I I had a goal of being in the Guinness Book of World Records for doing headstands in the most places on earth. But then <laughs> in the last few years, I kind of forgot about it. So now I've taken some trips and forgot to do headstands. So I'm going to have to remember that again. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's so great. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Is there anything else? Oh, I almost forgot. You have a, you also have a, a is, it, is it a podcast or it's a radio show, right? No, well, I do have links to the radio shows that I did, but I did those quite a long time ago. I did an amazing interview with Anita Johnston, though, on um, blog. Yeah, it was like a blog talk radio, but I haven't done any of that for so long. Mm -hmm. Um but yes, I I do have, if I would highly recommend anyone listening to go to that particular one with Anita Johnston, the Eating in the Light of the Moon one. It was an amazing interview. And she even had said so. I knew how, because I was so impacted by her work, I had already read her book like four times by the time I did that interview. I had some really great questions. <laughs> Oh, awesome. I will have to check that out. I didn't know you actually interviewed her. So a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Maria also has a Facebook group that I'm a part of and I it's, whoa, hold on. I, I just got a, it's called, sorry, it's called making peace with food. Yes. So you can either go on your Facebook and search the groups or you can memorize that big long number afterwards. I, I am going to start this Monday. I'm starting um, Mindfulness Mondays with Maria, and I'm going to be offering um, different mindfulness things with eating or things just with plain mindfulness, all kinds of stuff throughout the year on Mondays in that group. Is that going to be a live sort of a thing, or is that a recorded that you're just going to post um, it on Facebook? I think at some point I'll, I'll probably do some live videos, but it's going to be just different. Every Monday there will just be something different. I don't know. It's going to evolve. I'm, I'm a person that kind of has to step into it and then see like what works best. I get that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Everybody visit Maria's website at mariarippo.com. And I just really appreciated having you here today and at least confirming that, yeah, we're in the right place in having struggled with 
an eating disorder, in my case, disordered eating, possibly in your case, and are able to uh, go out there and do really, really good work uh, with people who really appreciate it. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, Tracy. And I love the work you do. Thank you for all the amazing work you put out into the world and for inspiring me. You know, you were definitely one of the inspirations for me to go into eating disorder treatment. I appreciate that. I don't I don't consider myself an inspiration to many people. And in fact, I feel like I've got the fool archetype just pretty much written all over me a lot of the times. But so that means a lot. And I've been very inspired uh, from you, too. I mean, oh, my gosh, some of those sessions that we did in hypnotherapy, we were in a personal oh. transformation intensive together. Psychodramas. Oh, I don't know if you were in the one where they, where I was irritated. I was the, I was a patient. And of course I was irritated because I am by a blow dryer and somebody actually got a blow dryer. And during my hip, my session, they turn on this blow dryer and I freaked out. That's the whole point of it. I know you're There's supposed to freak out. Oh, oh but I, I feel that's so funny. <laughs> Talk about being creative. And we I saw some of the coolest, most creative ideas come out of psychodrama. It's just was mm. unbelievable. I just loved it. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not so irritated uh, by blow dryers and noise anymore. How about that? <laughs> Maybe we should get together and offer some um, psychodrama for people in eating disorder treatment. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. There's, <laughs> in fact... Yeah, in fact, here, I'm going to share this one last thing with you. And I don't know if you were there when I presented it in our class, but do you remember the assignment where everybody had to present a something uh, to I'm, the class or a small group or something, some sort of thing? And I've always wanted to do the victim triangle of codependency with disordered eating. And oh I'm, not, I'm not sure you were in my group. Uh, it was a small group. Uh, oh, wait a minute. We have to start. This is not the right place to start. We have to start with disordered. <laughs> yeah. So here's here's the victim triangle. Dysfunction. With, dysfunction. Yeah. So these are the voices of like what we would be using in psychodrama, right? I'm the I, I have no control is like victimy sort of language. There's no way I'll ever get better. I'll never be comfortable. Yeah, so these are the sort of voices, and we all know about that persecutor. Lose weight, you're a fat slob, you're fat, you're ugly, you're disgusting sort of uh, sort of thing. And then the rescuer, this is the permission-giving voice. Just go to the fridge, you'll feel better. It's are okay. you inside my head? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, are you inside my head? Exactly. Uh, but then it doesn't end here because this is what this is what comes into our offices, right? Like all yeah. these voices, all these eating disorder voices, and they don't have to just be victim, persecutor, or rescuer. They go round and round and round and uh, pretty much at random paces and times. But you can switch that over to instead of that victim, you can become empowered. And then here are some other things that you can say to yourself, such as mm. I can ask for help. I have plenty of options and choices. I can accept my body as it changes. So more empowered statements that you can make. And Yay. then, yeah. I, instead want to of, this, I can't really read it because the, 
I would love to have you send this to me. Yeah, I can email it to you. Is it not showing up on StreamYard? Oh yeah, it is. Oh yeah, that's right. It's so small. Yeah. 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 I've got to figure out a way to do a large, maybe in the edited version of this, I'll just put it on the screen and have us talk over it. That's, um, that's part of it then. Yeah. Um, one each rectangle at a time or something. To yeah. Imagine. Yeah, exactly. So instead of victim, you're empowered. Instead of persecutor, you're more empathic. And then as far as rescuing, you're more enlightened. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is more about noticing and self-care, asking questions. Could I be upset about something? Uh, I can use a skill to ground myself. There are other ways I can do this and I'll choose a healthier way. And uh, yeah, I love this model because it really puts, again, inside of the head. It really puts, uh, (laughs) the the codependency is no more. (laughs) Now it's gone. You know, it's interesting because ego state therapy is sort of like an internal psychodrama. And they just get so clear about what each part's role is and what they say and how they are operating. And um, I'm going to, I would love to use that for- yeah. Yeah, that worked. I, I asked, I, well, I pre- presented it at Wellness, and then I even asked Diane, um, I even asked the, the, uh, the main person, I uh, asked, can I use that model and make a board game out of it? So one day we may actually make a codependency board game, and I have the idea Let's for it. it. <laughs> <laughs> and we could, we could copyright it. <laughs> Yes, I love it. It's like your cards that you made; those were so amazing. I still remember. <laughs> yeah, and the yeah, we could play it in our sessions and, and everything, and teach people how to get out of the victim triangle. That would be the the object of the game. Um, uh, I'm so down. Let's do this. Let's do it. Yeah, I'll I'll shoot you some of my ideas, and we can collaborate it. on it. That would be. Oh, and we got I got permission to be able to use it. So. And uh, yeah, so, all right. Well, remember to visit Maria, email her. All of that stuff's going to be in the show notes. And again, Maria, just thank you so much for being on Calming the Chaos podcast today. Thank you. It was so fun. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. All right. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Calming the Chaos podcast. You can find all Calming the Chaos podcasts on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Music, Spotify, Amazon, and on YouTube. You can also go to www.calmingthechaospodcast.com for more information and to see all podcast episodes. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to sharing my next podcast episode with you. In the meantime, take care.